This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Shakespeare's Friends Revealed, and the author is Beryl Hughes, and Beryl joins us from England. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Well, I'm going to read uh, what you've written just to kind of set the stage for everyone, Beryl. Uh, You say this, this book sheds light on a 400-year-old secret which has baffled Shakespeare's experts, several of whom have come up with names for Shakespeare's friends, but all these have been found to be erroneous. I countered that the revelations in my book are impossible to discredit. Let me say that again. I contend that the revelations in my book are impossible to discredit. So you have solved the 400-year-old mystery? I think so. And you found them in Shakespeare's sonnets. You found a lot of evidence about him. Yes, I did, really. Well, tell us, Beryl, why you decided to do this. What was the motivation to publish your book? Well, I didn't um, decide to do this research on Shakespeare. It just happened. In the early 1970s, I watched a Russian film of Hamlet on the television. And after that, I started thinking more deeply about Hamlet in particular. And I came up with the idea of the divine right of kings, which prevented Hamlet from from avenging his father's death for quite a while during the play and eventually it led on to the sonnets and I I was looking through a book of Tudor Saints and Martyrs and when I came to Robert Southwell I thought, oh, what he'd written sounds very like what what Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet and the more I looked into, um, into the conditions between them the more I found evidence that they really must have known each other. So I, I decided then I must make an effort to to write down all, all, all the things I can about it. And it took me a few years, actually. Then I learned to type. And after my husband died, I decided I really must try to put all this in order to... Um, to make a book out of it so that other people can judge what I have found and, and see if they think it is right. So we know so very little about the man uh, behind the writing and, you know, what was he like as you put uh, this, course, creative genius who uh, just is greatly respected, but who were his friends and who were worthy to be his intimate? So what did you learn? Uh, who were his friends? Well, first of all, I found the link to Robert Southwell in, in, um, after looking at the sonnets. And then I had to find out a lot about Robert Southwell. And I, I found out that um, he did know a young woman called Anne Bellamy. And eventually, 
he was the only person who spoke against him at his trial in 1595, and I thought, well, this is odd. And, and it all just fell into place then. So there's very uh, few factual references to him at all. There's not very much available. That's right. But I, I found a lot of um, images in common in, the, in Shakespeare's and Southwood's writings. It's almost as if they were speaking a private language where one thing stands for another. Now, I've tried to explain it all in the book. Well, you have come upon a, a, a key to unlocking this mystery like no other. And why do you think you were able to see it and others have not been able to uh, understand it? That I really don't know. I, I really don't. I, I, I am amazed by it, quite honestly. Have you always been interested in Shakespeare? Yes, uh, ever since he first came to my notice when I was quite young at school. So there was just something about Shakespeare that caught your fascination? Yes. Have you seen many of his plays? I've seen quite a few, not so many recently, because I'm getting older now. But um, I, I have been to Stratford on Avon to see some of the plays, and I've seen um, plays in, in, in other parts of the country. I saw Richard Burton playing Hamlet in the London Old Vic, and that was, that was wonderful. Now, you say that this is the first time that anyone has given a reasonable explanation of the place... Shakespeare described in the last two sonnets. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, what, what I've read um, from the Shakespeare critics previously is that they don't really know where that place is. Some of them have suggested that it's Bath, but Bath is really a Roman fortress, and, and it doesn't fit. But um, once I read about Southwell, and after his death, but Father Garnet took that expedition to St. Winifred's Well in North Wales. I thought, well, this, this sounds like the, the last two sonnets, because Shakespeare writes about the well. He says, in the, in the something well dies. And he wrote about the maid of Diane, and I thought, well, yes, that, that's just like um, St. Winifred trying to protect her chastity. You also point out that Shakespeare kind of reveals himself, I guess, his psychological difficulties uh, being pulled in two opposing directions. Now, uh, give us more on that. That's in Hamlet. That's in Hamlet was pulled two ways. He wanted to avenge his father's death, but to do that he would have to kill the king. And the king was divinely appointed by God to be his agent on earth. Um, James I of England, when he was still James VI of Scotland, wrote a book called The True Law of Free Monarchies, in which he put forward this idea very, very strongly that the kings are God's agents on earth. So if Hamlet wanted to be obedient to God, he couldn't really kill a king. But he wanted to kill the king to avenge his father's death. 
And throughout a lot of the play, he's played backwards and forwards between these two ideas. And it isn't until he sees the army of Fortingraff going on its way to Poland that he finally realizes that he should be doing something too in his life. And so he does then decide to kill the king. Well, this book explains why Shakespeare was very depressed in his uh, life. Yes, later on. I think that there is some evidence that he was very depressed. I, I think I read also that there is evidence that he was sent back to Stratford-on-Avon under a cloud. Uh, and I think that he was very worried that the government would find out that he's been so very friendly with a Roman Catholic priest. Now, you talk about a scene that is revealing uh, in your book, a uh, scene from Shakespeare concerning Claudius eavesdropping on Hamlet's scene with Ophelia. Uh, why is that so significant? Well, I think that's a very important scene because it makes Claudius realize that Hamlet knows that he, Claudius, has seduced Ophelia. And because of that, Claudius decides to send him away to England to be killed. Now, what about Shakespeare being a Catholic? Well, I, 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 after, after reading the sonnets, I really think he was. I mean, some of the sonnets... It, the, Summit about 26 and 27, they really are describing just what you would be doing if you were following the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, uh, who was southward superior as, as a Jesuit. And I, I really can't see it any other way now. What do you think Protestants will feel about that, uh, that kind of revelation? I, I don't think they'll be very happy about it at all. But I hope that such prejudices can be put aside. Well, what are some of the other things that really stood out to you, Beryl, that just uh, helped you better understand Shakespeare? Shakes well, Shakespeare the person, Shakespeare the man. It's been a long, slow process, actually. And it's only since I, I discovered all this that I've seen more, uh, more of the, the things that happened in his life, because he lived in a very anti-Catholic time. And uh, in quite a few of his plays, there is a plea for tolerance. And I think he really would have liked to see... Um, a peaceful resolution to the situation in which he finds himself in, in England. So part one, you focus on Hamlet, and part two, you focus on the sonnets. Uh, why did you do it that way? Because that's the way I found it. Uh, I started off by seeing this Russian film, and then I thought about Hamlet. And it wasn't until after that that I came the sonnets and found the link with Robert Southwell. Were there some images in the Phoenix and Turtle that were uh, very striking to you? Yes, well again, nobody has explained these images and if you read 
the, the, the images and we throw them back to Southwark's poetry, it, it seems, well, it certainly seems to me that it's easy to understand what the images mean. Well, Beryl, uh, what are some of your closing thoughts about your book? Just some concluding thoughts of the importance to uh, read it. Well, I'm hope, I, I wrote the book um, primarily with an audience of in, intelligent people in mind, people who are interested in Shakespeare. But I also hope it will come to the notice of Shakespeare experts, you know, like the professors at the universities and that they will read it and, and think that there is something very much correct and true in this and that it will open up a whole new school of, of research for, for students of Shakespeare. We've been talking with Beryl Hughes. She is the author of her book, Shakespeare's Friends Revealed. Beryl, tell us how to get your book. Uh, I think... You will need to go to the Author House website. Right, that's authorhouse.com. www.authorhouse.com. And, and if you type in the title and then search, you find it. And also, I think there are also a few copies in Amazon. Right, people can order it through the retail online websites or, you know, in any store they would walk in, they could order it. Well, thank you, Beryl. Any other, any other concluding thoughts? No, that's all. Thank you. Thank you for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, Girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. 
Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, My Plain Truth. And plain is spelled P-L-A-N-E. A little different than most would expect. My Plain Truth. A soul-satisfying crash course to unconditional love and forgiveness. And the author is Jill Douglas. And Jill joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jill. Hi, Steve. Good morning. Well, thank you for being with us. This is really going to be a life-altering experience for all of us because you're going to share with us your life-altering experience that all happened because of a plane crash. Uh, That's probably the worst nightmare that any of us uh, would fear. And it's beyond, always happens to somebody else. But on January 21st, 2006, your husband Terry and you uh, were on a getaway and uh, you were in a small plane and you say 15 terrifying minutes of uncertainty as whether you would live or die when the single-engine commercial plane suddenly lost its power and the fate and destiny of all eight passengers was about to change forever. And this is a true story uh, of surviving this plane crash, and, uh, and your goal is to inspire us to take responsibility for everything that happens in our life, good and bad, and to realize we are souls having a human experience and not the other way around. And we're all connected to each other. Uh, of course, we, you know, you're going to talk about angels and guides and God and, and getting on the right course and finding out what your purpose in life. And I guess all of the above, uh, that's what has happened to you, hasn't it, Jill? It certainly has. <laughs> and it's been a very cathartic experience for me in writing this book because um, after the plane crash, I, I had a chance to um, completely look at my life up until that point and it was very clear that I was now on a spiritual path and that I had to see things completely differently than I had before the plane crash. And it's not like my life wasn't what I thought good before the plane crash and so I don't feel like it happened because I had done anything wrong. It's simply that I believe that God had been um, whispering to me and nudging me all along throughout my life but I really wasn't listening to what my soul was saying to me and or what my true purpose in life was. And it wasn't until after this plane crash that I could really take a good look. And so for, for uh, the reasons that it, it, um, it took that long for me to recover, in that time I, it was perfect because it allowed me to, uh, to take a look at my life and to really reevaluate what was important to me. So it took a couple of years for you to recover. Oh yes, it was um, it was a good three months in the hospital. But then once I was home, I was still very much tied to my bed. I say because I was, you know, I was still having to learn to walk and and just just do the simple everyday things that you you can imagine when you have so as many breaks as I did. It was just difficult. Well, we're not going to get into all the details of the oh. terror and the uh, you know the crash and all the pain and all that. But let's go back before. When you were much younger and you were in searching and you went to a medium uh, to kind of look at your future and what were you told? 
Well, I was told that in my mid to late 40s, I would have a serious life-threatening event and that it would, um, there would be a misdiagnosis and that it started with C. And I had no idea what that would be, but I asked, is it cancer? And this, this uh, medium said, no, it's not cancer. And I couldn't really, I guess I wasn't really even believing this because I didn't really want it to be true. Um, but they did say that I would uh, survive and not to worry. But there would be this mid-diagnosis. Mid and then furthermore, they said that I, in my mid-50s, I would go on and become most well-known for my writings. And yeah. all of this at the age of 21 was something that I really couldn't pretty much comprehend. <laughs> so you and your husband, Terry, you're on this getaway, romantic getaway, and you're in this single-engine commercial plane. And then tell us what happened. Well, we were comfortable. It was about five minutes into the flight, and then all of a sudden a very loud bang happened in uh, the plane. And we all sort of sat up straight, and we noticed that the single propeller at the front of the plane just started to slowly wind down to a dead halt. And then we kind of looked around at each other and realized that there was no other engine in this plane. And immediately the um, pilot had, was getting on his radio and uh, calling Mayday, Mayday. So we kind of instantly knew that there was something wrong. And um, from there, uh, pretty much he, the pilot continued his uh, Mayday calls. And we all just, I think, were doing our own life review. And about another five minutes went by, and my husband turned to look at me and he had been surveying the situation, I, I think, quietly, and he turned to look at me and said, this doesn't look very good, and he was shaking his head. And as he did that, another set of eyes superimposed themselves over my husband's eyes, and they were very blue, wide set apart, they were round, and they had very distinct wrinkles. And I couldn't understand at the time, like, what was that? Like, what, what was the meaning of those eyes? And then as he turned away from me, my husband, then those eyes disappeared. And about five minutes later, we, um, we were now over a mountain in this area. And fortunately, we crashed into a clear-cut section of a remote forest on Vancouver Island. Otherwise, if we had a hit into the uh, forested area, we probably wouldn't have been able to be rescued. But we did crash, and we crashed, and I discovered that my, um, my husband was dead and that I was still alive. And were there other survivors? There were. Uh, the pilot and the little boys died. So all the men died and all the ladies uh, survived. So there was four um, or five survivors in total. So after that happened, how did you deal with all this pain, all this grief, all, you know, of course, I'm sure coming back to your mind was this of prediction of, you know, were you angry at God? Were you just, uh, I mean, what, what happened to you? Well, yeah, I was never really angry at God. It was almost like God had told me um, in that moment when those eyes superimposed themselves that I felt that I wasn't going to die. My soul was making that decision in that very moment that I was not going to die, but yet I felt that my husband was. And I didn't know what the meaning of those eyes were, but 
uh, throughout my recovery, and as I started to get um, better, let's just say, was I was able to walk and sort of get on with my life, which was a good year and a half, two years after the accident, I, as I started to ask, you know, what is the purpose of my life, what, um, what do I want now in my life, and what is, um, and what will make me happy, I, I found the answer to the, that eye question, and that was in, I found uh, the owner of those eyes, and that is the man that I've now married. His name is Robin, and um, I know that my soul was to continue on on this journey. And we were to, um, we had some karmic things that we had to uh, continue to do in this lifetime. So my life was not meant to be over at that moment. And yet, I understand my husband's was. And how did you meet him? Well, you know, <laughs> I write in my book, it's, it's as if God's hands were on mine, because I, I went to the internet, and I went to a spiritual website called Tut. Dot com, which is Think Unbelievable Thoughts. And I simply reached out to where I wanted to be. I, I think God knew I was pretty clear what I wanted now. And I can't even explain how it happened because I'm not even a computer person. <laughs> but he was the only person on this whole list of potential people that I really just wanted to connect to and begin, uh, I guess, a conversation of like-minded, spiritually like-minded people. And... I met him, and at first he didn't show me his eyes. I guess he had a baseball cap on, and I couldn't see them. But when he, as we started to talk and get to know each other, he sent me another picture, and I instantly had a recognition. And I just started to cry because I realized, oh, my goodness, this is something unbelievable because the eyes were exactly, not kind of close, not sort of, but exactly as I saw them in my husband's eyes minutes before we crashed. So from there, you know. The story just took off. <laughs> right. So what is your purpose in life now? What what did you, have you discovered? Well, certainly I discovered that all of the pursuits that I had been going after before the crash, like all my material accomplishments and all the job titles I had, all the things that I thought were important, and pretty much most of society is geared that way, is like if you you can achieve, believe it and you can achieve it, then you're successful, that they really don't have a lot of um, bearing on your true happiness. And so I, what I discovered simply is that my, my truth, speaking up, owning my own power as a female, um, is the most important thing that I have to do, speak my truth, know that I... Um, am connected to my to my source. I, I'm comfortable calling God, and to tell my story so that other people can uh, relate to, um, like from the tragedy comes triumph. Like everything that happens in your life is for a purpose, and not to see it as bad and not to take the victim road. And that was kind of pointed out to me very early on in the hospital as I was lying there wondering. You know, I, I knew I could take the road of despair and, you know, you know, woe is me and play a victim, or I could take the road of uncertainty. And while the road of uncertainty was just that, certainly uncertain, uncertain, I just knew that's the road I had to go down. And so I did. And so that's why I wrote the book, is to, to really hopefully inspire people when whatever their plane crash is, and I liken my plane crash to 
uh, similar events in people's lives that they weren't expecting, because obviously they never expected this, simply as like a sudden divorce when your husband and your wife comes home and they say, you know, I'm out of here, they don't want to be married to you anymore. Or, you know, you've worked for a company for 25 years and all of a sudden they um, they fire you and you're out of a job. Or even, you know, when somebody in your own family is killed unexpectedly. You know, it alters who you are as a person and you need to see the good in it, not the- just the tragedy because it's always God asking ourselves to expand who we really are and to open up to love and um, for me I had to learn to forgive myself to love myself unconditionally and obviously when I could do that I can do that for others as well now you say when you change your limiting beliefs you can change your overall wellness your energy will increase and your body will flow with ease and generally you will feel body and mind so uh, what's how do you change your limiting beliefs? Right. Well, first of all, I have to say that um, first, all of our our beliefs, our, I'm sorry, our our thoughts. Ninety five percent of our thoughts are subconscious, meaning we aren't even really aware of them, and only five percent of what we think is on a conscious level, and so. I wasn't even aware that I had these limiting beliefs, uh, Steve. And then when I found out that I did and that they were in my DNA and they came from many generations back, once I looked at them in terms of things like, I am not worthy, I am female, and and as females you are not worthy of certain things, and I would give away my power to men, I always thought men knew more than I did. Um, And I, I didn't know that that was actually part of my limiting beliefs and what it does when you think certain thoughts in your mind there is a mind-body connection and you have what I think is what manifests in your body is dis-ease or discomfort it starts out as discomfort but eventually turns into a disease and I how do you change them I just happened to meet somebody um, her name is Beverly Lenz who is a a belief change practitioner, and through her own um, life-altering event, she discovered her gift, and that was to connect with God and to help people realize that these limiting beliefs are not really them, but it's just maybe perhaps in their DNA and that they can change their thoughts and change their beliefs and thus change the wellness of their body. Well, your book is broken down into four parts. Uh, the first part, part one, the early years, and then part two, my princess life with Terry, uh, your husband who died in the right. plane crash. And then part three, rescue and recovery. And part four, my spiritual transformation begins. Well, we've just got about a minute left, Jill. Give us some closing thoughts. Well, I think in closing, I would just like to say that, well, the book is uh, about the plane crash um, because it makes for, I guess, a good story and lots of drama. Um, it Simply, the plane crash was just my catalyst towards my soul's true purpose and to get me to reconnect to my soul and to see my lessons in life and to um, to learn that this lifetime is here for me to learn certain lessons and that was to trust myself and love myself and others unconditionally. And the, open my heart 
and to make decisions more from my heart and not so much my ego mind. The title of the book, My Plain Truth. And as I said before, plain spelled P-L-A-N-E with quotation marks around it. My Plain Truth, a soul-satisfying crash course to unconditional love and forgiveness. And the author who we've been talking with is Jill Douglas. Jill, tell us how to get your book. You can go to Amazon.com. You can go to the Author House uh, as well. And I, my new website is JillDouglas.com, and you can just order it online, and you can read it as an ebook or in a hard or soft cover. Thank you, Jill, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you so much, Steve. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903 617 6899. 903 617 6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Evolution of Dr. Steve Pratt. And the author is Heidi A. Wimmer, and Heidi joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Heidi. Hi, how are you? This is going to be a look inside of the world of medical drama. You love medical dramas. Yeah, it's all goes back to my childhood and watching um, the emergency and medical center and shows like that. Well, let me read a couple of things you've written about your book so everyone kind of gets an overview. You say the main character, Steve Pratt, and you're going to talk about how through his experiences with his patients and other staff members at the hospital, he grows and becomes a confident, mature physician 
you also say that how all of life's experiences, both good and bad, shape a person and transform that person into a well-rounded individual. And I guess at first, Steve Pratt, Dr. Pratt, is immature and oh, cocky. He's an emergency room doctor, but his life experiences, this, this drama, this kind of a soap opera a look at his life, uh, he changes. Yes, that's correct. Well, tell us about yourself, Heidi. Uh, tell us about your background and why you decided to write this. I'm currently teaching at Wichita West High School, and I teach health science, which is an, a class um, that kind of teaches the kids how to do CPR and first aid and kind of gives them an overview of what um, is out there in the health profession. And I started writing um, in college. I pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down. And finally, um, this last past year, uh, a friend of mine who is an English teacher here at the school asked me kind of what I was doing, and I told her, and she said, well, why don't you do something with it? So, uh, make a long story short, um, here I am. Well, it's a favorite, it seems. Uh, there's been some TV shows along the way that have uh, been focused on hospitals and been very, very popular, so who knows, right? Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping this will be... Uh, maybe ranking like, you know, emergency and ER and Grey's Anatomy, something like that. That's kind of my ultimate um, situation for this to happen. So we'll see. And your characters uh, deal with, as you put it, real-world problems such as child abuse, obesity, spousal abuse, and even rape. Yes, that's correct. Um, In in different chapters, um, these are dealt with through patients who come into the ER and into the hospital and how this affects the doctors and especially Dr. Pratt and how that um, those situations really um, reflect on him and how he deals with um, all those situations. Well, let's learn more about Dr. Steve Pratt. Tell us about his, uh, I guess, how he is at the beginning of the book. Um, he starts out with uh, being um, a very... Uh, go-getter. Um, he's a person who kind of looks before he leaps, um, always wants to, you know, be in the thick of things. And as the book progresses, he realizes that he can't always do that. Um, he has a couple close calls with his personal situations and starts to settle down in the middle of the book and then really uh, becomes just, you know, a well-rounded um doctor and physician that everybody really can count on in in the hospital. But at the beginning, uh, you describe him as young and cocky. That's correct. That's correct, yes. And um, by the end of the book, he turns out to be not as cocky. He still has a little bit of that cockiness because that kind of makes him that ER doctor, um, you know, with that adrenaline junkie kind of thing going on. And um, but he does tend to settle down as as the book moves on. So we learn about uh, Steve Pratt, Doctor Pratt, in the emergency room settings as well as outside the hospital. Yes, yeah. There are several chapters that deal uh, with him um, researching some of the patients and you know going to their houses and kind of seeing what's going on and 
and so you do see him outside of the hospital setting as well as in the hospital setting, not just in the ER, but, you know, um, in the whole hospital itself. Now, the head of the hospital, uh, Dr. John uh, uh, Dobinson? Yes, that's correct. Uh, how does Dr. John play? What part does he play in the story? Um, he is more of a supporting role, uh, more of a father figure to both of Dr. Pratt and also Dr. Uh, Bradfield. He is the um, head of the hospital, like you said, and kind of takes that role. Um, he steps away from medicine and really just runs the hospital. Now, you mentioned Dr. Bradfield, Dave Bradfield. Uh, he's the director of medicine and also Steve's best friend. Uh, what role does he play? He plays a, a huge role um, in Steve's development as the book goes on. He is yet their best friend, but they're probably closer than most brothers that I know. And um, they, and you see that as you see Steve growing and maturing. Now, are these characters based on real-life characters or someone from uh, that was portrayed in uh, past uh, TV shows? Um, both. Some of them are. It's they're all a com- they're all a combination of um, real-world characters that I've seen in my past, and also um, characters that I have seen on television. So, a, a good combination of both. Now, you say your book is a medical drama heavy on the drama. Now, how heavy are we talking about? We've already mentioned that it has some pretty uh, tough issues, but how much detail do you go into? Uh, it's, I don't know if it's, it's, if it's that graphic as far as, you know, for instance, the rape or, or the child abuse. I mean, you know that it's going on, but um, it's more, like well, I say, heavy on the drama if you do not know anything about the medical field or the or medical world and you pick up my book, you would be able to understand even the medical terminology in it. It is not as heavy as some of the books that are out there that you almost need a degree to read. So this is a new experience for you, writing like this? Yes, it is. This is my first time at actually doing something like this. Like I said before, I've been writing um, since I was in college and writing stories here and there, seeing things that I've seen out in the world and putting them on paper and then dropping it and then coming back and, and putting things together. And finally, um, with the help of, of my English teacher here at West High, helped me put it together and I'm interviewing you with you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's been a whirlwind. Um, I didn't, I had no aspirations at all where this was going to go. In most books uh, dealing with uh, medical issues or medical stories, they're pretty technical. Yours is different. It is. It's, um, like I said before, it is not anything that I do say that you don't understand. I either explain through um, the characters or actually just go ahead and put it in parentheses um, so that you guys know what I'm talking about. And so that you can understand the storyline as as it goes through the book. Now, tell us uh, some of the other characters. Uh, is who's who's uh, Jake? Uh, um, he is a supporting character, and he is um, the husband 
of the woman that um, Steve treats in the ER, um, and he immediately suspects something's um, amiss because of her injuries. And she refuses treatment or decides not to be treated, and then you see her again, and her injuries are still severe, and she makes up excuses, and that and Jake is actually her husband who is actually um, beating her. And as the story goes on, he gets uh, more and more intense with her. And it also turns his attention toward Steve Pratt. Well, Steve, in this case, takes a personal interest and even goes to their home? Uh, yes. Where some uh, very uh, dangerous situation uh, arises. Yes, um, he finds, um, actually he finds her uh, on, um, basically on the floor in the, you know, outside and and then he takes her and they call an ambulance and then as he, as she is recovering, um, the husband, who is Jake, um, tries to come and get her out of the hospital and Steve stops him and they have a a big confrontation in the hospital. And then as the story, as that chapter moves on, um, he wants her to testify and, you know, restraining orders and all this kind of stuff. And she's very afraid. And finally, you know, they get it to that point and she's at home waiting for Steve to come back after there's uh, an incident at the emergency room that he needs to deal with. He comes back and Jake is there with her and has um, got her and again pointed to her head. And Steve tries to diffuse that situation. Well, it sounds like fiction, but at the same time, it may mirror what's going on in real life. Yeah, I mean, those are those are stories that you hear about on the news, and you see on you know all of the place. You see it in TV shows and and real world situations um, almost daily. Unfortunately, what are your plans for the future? Are you going to continue on writing? I would love to. Um, as this book ends, it ends as um, kind of a little trailer, and so I'm I'm currently in the process of writing um, the next segment to to this. So it, I'm about in the middle. Any other characters that we should know about? Um, Doctor Bradfield, who um, you know is a supporting character in this book, but will be the main character in my next book. Um, he is a big part of, like I said before, Steve's world, and, and those two really feed off of each other and revolve um, around the hospital, and basically they are the hospital. So he is a big part of uh, my plans for my next book. We've been talking with Heidi A. Wimmer. She is the author of her new medical drama book, Evolution of Dr. Steve Pratt. Heidi, tell us how to get your book. It is currently at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and also with my publisher at AuthorHouse.com. Thank you for being with us, Heidi, on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve.